books as opposed to which books were bad books. They, they were close enough, tight enough, but as they spread away and didn't see each other, and time went along and new doctrinal eras came, like this Gnosticism thing got bigger and this modalism and some of these others that I've been discussing here, it became more and more difficult for the average person to, to know just which to believe. And then you have these big united voices, these bigger churches getting bigger and having greater influence and having these big movements going on toward this one church idea with its head in Rome and its authority mainly in Rome and what the Bishop of Rome says. Uh, that, that means that there's this, how could all these big important people be wrong and our little local church over here be right? I think you can look around and see how it's easy. I mean, look at our church here. We have 100 people or 90 to 100 people here on an average Sunday at the current time. How could we, how could we be true in doctrine and maybe a church that runs 1,000 or two or 24, uh, three, 4,000, why aren't they better than I mean, They surely know more than we know. They've been successful. They've gotten there. These preachers have all been to big seminaries, and they surely they know more than they, that same kind of dynamic went on in those days. And even in, in the, some of the churches that were bigger and departing, they realized we need to standardize this thing. We need to decide what we're going to believe, which books are really these from God, which ones are not. We need to come, come to a consensus, an agreement in this area. So let's talk a moment about the canon itself, and let me go back over the definition, understand the word. We use the word to communicate the idea that along with the Old Testament, we accept 27 and only 27, because that's under controversy, books of the New Testament to be divinely inspired. Doesn't matter how many other out there that claim there are, they are inspired. We believe there are only 27 inspired books, and they're ones we have in our New Testament. We do not believe in the Apocrypha, or there are 14 of those books. Some groups, Catholics, believe, for example, the Apocrypha is true, too. We don't believe in catechism. It's not the same level of Scripture. Only the Scriptures, only these 27, these books. The word canon comes from the Greek word K-A-N-O-N, and it's used metaphorically in reference to a measure, a norm, or a standard. Standard, um, really, sort of the idea grew out of the papyrus plants that grow along the Nile River. They're kind of like a celery plant. You know, they grow up and have a stalk here, and then they sprout out and have a stalk. And, and the, the papyrus plant, a stalk, straight with no leaves, no sprouts, would generally be considered a canon. I mean, in the way back, I mean, just looking at etymology where this idea, they looked at it as a canon because they could cut that off here, beat it out, and make a sheet of paper out of that piece of stalk. <coughs> beat it on a rock, that's how they did it, and put one across another, two of them, and it'd make a good writing paper that last several thousand years. So a canon, it's the idea of a standard measurement, a standard rule. The apostle Paul referred to, to the word, or use the word, and it's, it's translated rule in your Bible in Galatians 6 and verse 16. The, uh, the rule of conduct, the rule of practice, so it's our standard, it's our canon. So that's the, how this word 
came to be. Now, I'll talk a minute about Marcion, and I mentioned him already, and the Gnostics, uh, the her heretical theology of, of Gnosticism emerged, and, and it was embraced by a whole lot of Christians. You talk about people that, that fell away. You talk about people that were taken away in, a, in an erroneous direction, in a false please, belief system. Well, the Gnostics had lots of bad influence on the Christian community, and many follow the Gnostic way of thinking. And as I indicated earlier, around 140 AD, Martian, the charismatic leader of the, of the, of the Gnostics, uh, he set up a, a uh, canon. Some books that he said, well, we're going to put an end to this noise of which is right and which is wrong. I'm going to tell you these are the right inspired books. So he took just the ones he chose, not all of the ones that he chose. He took out anything, as I said, that supported Judaism or was materialistic in it at all, as he thought. So he was anti-Jewish, and his canon included um, just those that are mentioned. And I don't know that we have a slide on that particular one. I guess we do not. Yeah, there they are, I believe. In front of you. Let me look over here. Yeah, those are the, here's the ones that he included, and they're... As I said, he didn't include all of each of those books. Even in the book that we would, for example, call Luke, he went in and carved out anything that he thought was contrary to Gnosticism ideas. And he did that with everyone. And you can see all except, I guess, Luke here. These are the Pauline epistles. And he, again, took out Judas, uh, Judas, or Jewish ideas. And in light of Marcion's bold initiative and announcement in the canon, <clears throat> well, the rest of the Christian community said, hey, he's stealing people. He's confusing people. We've got to, he says this is, this is not the canon. These are not the only books. And they're not the right books. And he didn't use them in the right way. He took out what he shouldn't have. We've got to go on record here and now and say, here's who we really are. Here's the right books. So they're kind of back against the, corner, against the wall and backed into the corner here to do something about it. So the need for a canon, let's talk about this need. Many other factors besides Gnosticism that de determine the need for a canon. One is false doctrine practices within the ranks of Christianity. As you can imagine, from what I've been saying already, this thing's growing. These false doctrines are proliferating. Lots of them. I just touched uh, the tip of the iceberg here so far today. Some of the main ones. Uh, Montanists, they are a group of early believers that we trace our history through the Montanists, one of the very first groups uh, that that you call a group as a whole. Um, well, some of the Montanists uh, thought prophecies were continuing and that they were still getting divine inspiration and therefore there were still prophets on the scene. They didn't believe that when that which is perfect has come, that is completion of the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 13, that which is in part, that is the pieces here and there, would be done away. They didn't see that. So they, they thought, we keep prophesying, but some of the more astute Bible believers believed what Paul said when that was perfect is coming. They saw that the 27 books were there, and they began to realize these new things are not prophecies. They're not, but the Montanists had some members, not all, in their group that believed in the continuing of prophecy. Also, persecution and martyrdom. I really spent time last night, maybe even too much time talking about that. But during the hundreds of years of great persecution, 
Roman authorities demanded Christians surrender their writings. While people were being beaten and, and uh, the Colosseum was flourishing with people being gored up by lions or eaten by dogs or gored by bulls and all that bad stuff was going on in the Colosseum in Rome, but in lesser Colosseums like the one in Ephesus and around the Roman Empire, it was going on in neighborhoods. Plenty up there in Bithynia, it's a upper part of Turkey over close to the, uh, the Caspian Sea. He's, he's killing Polycarp up there, you know, burning him to death in that macabre way that he did it. And so this is going on, but one of the other things that the Romans are doing when they're trying to purge the Christian, get rid of it really, they're going into homes and into churches and they're, getting, they're confiscating all of their divine writings. You know, if they've got a copy of Philippians, handwritten copy, or a copy of a copy of handwritten, the Romans are looking for all of this, this uh, material that is driving this Christian community. They want to make sure the kids don't get hold of it and get infected with it. Or anybody. So they're, they're burning books and parchments and scrolls, not books like we think of this book here, but, but the materials that they had written. They're, they're burning it. If you have some copies in your home, let's just put it on a real today society book. Look, say you have a, you have some guns in your gun safe at home, some handguns and long guns, and the police of the city of Houston show up at your door. Maybe they got the DPS, Department of Public Safety, the state troopers. Maybe they even got some militiamen, some some National Guard guys. And they want to get your guns and do away with your guns. You got to decide which ones you're willing to keep. Not going to be an easy decision. It's even more so when these Roman authorities are at your door saying, bring out all of your religious writings, everything. You got to decide which ones you're going to keep, which ones are really scripture. You're not going to, you're not going to keep a, a, a copy of something you don't believe is divine. You may even give them some of your divine writings, a whole bunch of them did. But you're only going to defend the ones and risk your life to save the ones that you really believe are, are, are inspired of God. So this is a factor. Constantine's call also in 323 and thereafter for multiple copies of Scripture. Once, once Constantine supposedly converted to Christianity, he began to he said, hey, if, if Christianity is a, the, the state religion here, and I'm the head and the boss of it, and I'm going to use it as a tool to unify my, my Roman society back to where it ought to be, then he, he said, we need copies of these Christian writings. Whereas just before him, they had been trying to get rid of all the copies. Here, all of a sudden, there's a flip-flop and a reversal. He's saying, write them down. So what happens then is people begin to say I'll make copies but I want to make copies of scriptures not of spurious books you know if you're going to you have to so much trouble getting something to write on a papyrus or a skin you got to you're not going to waste your paper writing down a funny book <laughs> or something you're going to make sure so these are purging these are things that are driving the need for a standard that can be recognized uh, canon <clears throat> certainly the need that authoritative standard was there, and then the passing of time. 
you can see how the passing of time. I mean, John writes the, the Revelation in 95. Here's James's way earlier, one of the first books in the 40s. And you got Philippians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Acts and all these books coming along from about 40 to about 95, somewhere in that bracket of time roughly. And so you were living then. You saw it happening. You were hearing it in your neighborhood where you live. This is, this is, these are the real because These were the apostles. They were writing these books down. But then you get old and you die. And your kids are left, but they didn't see it. They didn't have quite the conviction that you had. And then your kids have kids or your grandkids and they're not quite as interested in what's right and wrong as you were interested in what's right and wrong. So just the, just the passing of time is demanding we need more than word of mouth stuff. We need an authoritative decision on what's real and what we can believe, our, our doctrines, our documents. Also the process of canonization, let me talk about it a bit. First, certain documents of the New Testament were collected locally, and they were quoted in, uh, in works of theology uh, without giving very much thought to their genuineness. They were just sort of recognized as I mean, even these guys that I talked about, like Arrhenius and, and Cyprian and some of those who were doing these writings, they're just referring to the material that they know is in the community, and they're talking about it. They, you can read them. I've got, I think it's in, in the there's books to you, brother, there in the writings of the church fathers that's over in this church office. I mean, like 15 volumes, big, thick stuff like here. You can read what they said. Just go in and read. And they're talking about the book of James, or they're talking about the book of, of Matthew, and they're quoting sections from there. So that's going on. That's how it's going at first. And then second, in response to Marcion and the spurious Gnostic text, Christian leaders begin to investigate the canon and to, and to publish genuine uh, books, legitimate books, true, true scripture books, make copies of Mark and make copies of uh, Acts and of Romans and these other books. It was not a popular thing to do because remember the persecution was rising and you make copies of those, they may knock on your door and demand that you burn them all or they'll take them from you and burn them right out there in front of you. So they're, they're getting there. But it, nevertheless, there's a driver here among the Christian community to write these things down that we, we don't forget. And our kids can have them and our grandkids can have them in their own, own for perpetuity. Finally, church councils met to validate genuine books and expose those that were spurious. They didn't decide. They didn't come in with a big argument. They just come in to say, we all know these are the right ones and we all know these are not the right ones. So these are the ones we declare to be the right ones. That happened in some of these, like we call fellowship meetings, or they call them synodes, or conferences, or councils. That was going on. The basis, how would you know? How would you, you just put yourself back there. How would you go about deciding which one was true? Would you just say, well, Mama said it was. Dad said it was. Well, my preacher says so. What? objective standard could you apply to any writing that came the Shepherd of Hermes, uh, Gospel according to Thomas, Matthew? Written by the 
written by the apostles, number one, had to be written by an apostle or someone immediately in the proximity with, that fellowship with, and knew the apostle. For example, a Luke was not an apostle, but he was right there with Paul all along the way, a lot of times together, most time together, sometimes a little separation, but most time together. Well, Luke was right on the scene. He was close to Paul. His writings of Luke and Acts stuck. Mark, Mark's not an apostle, but he was right there with Peter and Paul knew him. In fact, Paul for a while said, don't he may not go with us. And then later he said, he's good for us in the last book Paul wrote, Second Timothy. But, but he's, you can see either the apostles or somebody very close to the apostles. That was number one. That's the first consideration, the first objective standard to be applied to any kind of writing. Number two, in response to Mars, or excuse me, no, and then number number two here, conformity to what's called the rule of, of faith. Uh, any book that failed to meet the common standards of faith and practice was not accepted in Scripture. And that has to do somewhat, at least, with internal configuration of a book or internal information. For example, if a book contradicts its own self, it's not true. It's not inspired of God because... All the books of the Bible, according to the promise of Jesus, I will guide you into all truth, a promise of infallibility. So everybody knows that two contradictories cannot both be true. So if a writer's going along over here and he contradicts himself over here, throw that one out. It's not a scripture. We won't consider that for this canon, this rule, this standard that we're putting together here. Not only internal, but agreement with all the others. If we're going to have 25 or 27 books in here, all of these 27 books have to agree with each other. Not just internally within a book, but with all the others. Nothing James says can contradict what Paul said or vice versa. By the way, there are a lot of people who think James and Paul contradict each other, particularly on the matter of justification by works versus justification by faith. But there is no contradiction. But they think so. But at any rate, that could not happen. Furthermore, not only does each book have to agree internally and with all the other books of the New Testament, but it has to agree with all the books of the Old Testament. So you're putting together here something that has to have what would be called the conformity to the rule of faith. And then the final or third thing that they really looked at, it's a lesser one, but it still counted, was widespread and continuous acceptance and usage in churches. And that diminished over time as these various churches, these churches drifted further and further away then uh, they accepted stuff that wasn't true. But those legitimate churches, well, they certainly agreed. And even some to that degree, these uh, bigger churches, they, they still were pretty good when it came to what was Scripture at that particular point. They were in pretty well agreement. So when the canon was eventually closed, it included 27 books that make up our English New Testament there are, as I've indicated, far more books out there than just these 27, and many Christians were led astray by these spurious books, just like they are today. Gosh, I can't get over these thoughts in my head. It make me want to write, but I want to write a, a book entitled probably there, Stealing Our Children, and deal with the very idea of undermining when kids go out of high school, especially out of high school, and get into college, university system somewhere, particularly if they want to take a course in religion maybe an elective course in religion, take a course, Introduction to Biblical Christianity, 
and they get told right in there, right off the front end, that there were a lot of other books and the Christian community just didn't do a very good job. They deny everything I'm saying right here and undermine these kids that never heard anything in their Sunday school or from their preacher, from anybody, saying this is how they're going to attack you. They're going to say that, that what, 9 or 11, I think it is, of the 27 books of the New Testament are forgeries. They're going to tell that in a college like Texas University to your kid by a Ph.D., and your kid's going to come home and say, Mom and Dad, you didn't tell me that. I've learned you, these are forgeries. I, I, that I'm, I'm post-holding here, but I'm thinking too. I've I got to write this book. Ask God to give me a little time. Um, as long as the list was closing the canon, let's talk about that here. Um, it is obvious that with the passing of time, consensus was growing that the Christian community um, needed to know which books were, can, uh, were canon books. As long as the list was open, there were individual books of Scripture, but there was not yet this authoritative collection, this canon as we're calling it here. And the collection of New Testament books took place gradually over a period of time. It isn't just like one day they just did it. One day they came together and they declared what was already developed over this long period of time. These, this drift had been happening and people been thinking about it and, and coming up. And so they just decided, hey, at this meeting we're going we're gonna to declare this, put it down, make it official in writing. Christian leaders included the New Testament books in the canon because they were largely or already regarded as divinely inspired. I want to say that because, boy, oh boy, you would listen to the modern scholars and they would say, well, these men at this council of Chalcedon, they just got over there and they just decided these are the ones we like and we don't like those. They didn't do that. They, got, they came in there with the idea these are the ones that everybody's known for a long time were the right ones and all we're going to do is say, we agree with that. This is, let's put this, this argument to, to bed. These are the only ones. So it was not just some wild move uh, the Christian community, especially the Orthodox, the real Bible Christian community, they knew which ones were and had for a long, long time. And it's amazing to me they'd been able to do as good a job as they had as long as they had from one generation to the next generation to come down to that point to declare the right books in the New Testament. They recognized their innate worth and general apostolic authority, uh, direct or indirect, as in the case of Luke and those guys. The great debate was finally put to rest at this one particular meeting they had. It was Augustine, and please do not mention Dink because I use Augustine in these notes or in this book that <laughs> I'm a fan of Augustine because I am definitely not. He was a rascal. It was Augustine, though, who in three provincial synods, which is these meetings, these uh, getting-togethers as they had, cast his weight for the 27 books that now known as the Christian scriptures, the ones that we call the New Testament. We're going to change gears here for just a bit and not really go in a different direction, but we're going to lay some more groundwork because you can see in view of what I've been explaining that we're now moving forward to a solidification of this power. We have a standard now, a canon by which we can measure, but now we're looking at a power broker move that's, a, that's been in the making for a long time. The big church getting bigger, becoming one church, in their minds, and this one church then becoming to control what's called Christianity. This is where they're headed. And the thing that facilitated it the most was what I call the big wedding. Pagan Rome did its best to eradicate Christianity, but it failed. Miserably, it failed. 
As bystanders saw Christians dying for their faith, many were convicted. I have to insert this because it's so precious to me personally. The big Colosseum in Rome, if you've been to Rome, you've we've been there and seen it. It's kind of a ruins, but they keep it up. You can see it in a big circle and you can see the sand out there and see where the animals were kept down here and the gladiators, the Christians mainly, were kept and they were brought out in here and they turned the lines of the dogs, the bulls or tigers loose on them and let them gore them to death out here while the Romans sat around like Sunday afternoon football. And they said, hey, broken knee today. Isn't that great? Just bit his head off. But there were people sitting in those bleachers watching this stuff go on. And while they did it in front of the emperor and his group, he's, there were people out here saying, these people are dying for a cause. Something's driving them. You wouldn't go down there. You wouldn't be down there if you didn't have some real convictions. These are not preferences these people are dying for. These are convictions. They stand on something. I'm here. What do I believe? What would cause me to stand up? They got under conviction. They sought out other Christians. And as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of Christianity. I mean, they kill one here and there's many would believe. And Christianity, in spite of the Colosseum, in spite of all the persecutions, Decius and all that he was doing, in spite of every bit of that, Christianity is flourishing in the Roman Empire. This illicito, uh, religio illicita, illegal religion, they've tried to stamp out one generation, one section of, of, of emperors after another, and they miserably failed, and they knew they'd miserably failed. And Constantine, who's a general, comes along and he says, and I'm putting this in these texts, if you can't lick them, you ought to join them. We can't lick them. We can't whip them. Let's make them work for us. Let's unite the church, this thing that's standing and growing and we, these people will die for and this policy. Let's harness it. Let's, let's marry the church to the state. The state will be in charge. We'll govern the church. I'm the emperor. I'll be in charge of the church because I'm in charge of the state. And we will make everybody now become a part of Christianity. So we have one state church one big religious organization and we'll have the force of the church and all of its doctrine and the government with its military power and police authorities behind it, we're going to make it stick up. When the persecution stopped in that pagan Rome era, the Christians were like, thank God he's given us relief. It's persecution for our Christians is over. But what's happened is just a lull in the storm. The big storm's just about to start. Because the state, not only Constantine, but Constantine's followers, those guys made war on everybody who was not a Christian. You got these big churches that have exercised lots of power, especially the one in Rome. You can just see it. Here's the emperor in Rome. Constantine's living in Rome. Here's the, here's the bishop, the pastor, the church in Rome. Constantine's talking to him. They got it ear to ear. They don't have phones. They just meet. He tells him this and that. And Constantine assumed when I tell the 
pastor of the church here what I want the Christians to do, that's the whole church being told. He'll get the word out to everybody. I tell him. So, boy, here it is. The pastor is being told by the by the council by the the uh, emperor what to do, how to run your business, and and, and, control. and so it's like it's this great. But he's expecting Constantine is expecting all of the Christians. I use that loosely to line up and become part of this this marriage, become part, part of this state church. But what about these first century Christians back here who've been along all, all the way, who've not embraced these doctrinal changes, who are still orthodox according to the Bible, still believe the Bible, and it's their rule and manual practice, who will not worship the emperor, who will not bow down to it, who believe it's a state should never tell the church what to do, they should be separate, each church should be autonomous, and they've stood for that stuff. They're still standing for that stuff. And Constantine looks around, and his followers especially, and they say, they're not going to put up with this stuff. You're going to join us, or we're going to kill you. You say, that's pretty extreme. That's not as extreme as it really was. They did kill them, bunches and millions of them, really. And they killed them in terrible, terrible ways. And it proceeded to continue for at least a thousand years. One thousand years. That's a, that's a millennium. That's twice as long as the United States has been alive, existed. This is the way it went. It was awful. Christians suffered more in this period of time. But it started with Constantine. He was an illegitimate son of a pagan military leader whose name was Constantius. And of his wife, this uh, leader, Constantius, his wife was named Helena, uh, the mother of Constantine. And she'd had an affair apparently somehow with this guy and nevertheless had Constantine. Constantine and Maximinus were the two main Western powers, and there was a third one that we'll get to in a minute, but they were the two main Western powers, not the Eastern so much, but the Western power of the Roman Empire, and a showdown between Constantine and between uh, uh, Maximinus was just imminent. So Constantine decided he was going to take out Maximinus and become the sole authority in the West of the Roman Empire. So he crossed the Alps, and there's a map here that will show you that, with his army, and he marched down from where the snow cap, you can see the Alps are up there, down through the Italian leg and boot down there. And he came down to where Rome is. And you can see Rome in the, in the graphic about the middle of the leg. He marched down there, and nobody had ever yet been able to conquer Rome per se. Uh, but remember, some things had been happening. I told you last night about these, these guys that were... Uh, developing to the west, uh, I mean to the to the north, uh, the Germanic tribes, and we'll get back to them in a bit. But nevertheless, Constantine, who had now uh, become major leader, um, I'm going to tell you this, it's in your notes, before the famous battle of the Milvan Bridge, there's a bridge coming into Rome as sort of a defense line. I've seen that bridge. You've been to Rome. You no doubt want to see that place for sure if you know the Bible and are interested in history like this. Well, it, um, this uh, before this famous battle of the Milvan Bridge, 
uh, it seemed that Constantine's enemies were about to overwhelm him. He was going to lose. In other words, uh, Maximinus was going to conquer him instead of him conquering Maximinus. And it is, he claimed, Constantine claimed he'd had a vision just before the battle, and that in his vision he saw this, a vision of a cross in the sky and heard a voice saying, in this sign conquer. And the sign was the chi in the row in the Greek alphabet. His soldiers placed the chi in the row, which is what we would call a P, capital P with a little X. They put that on the emblem on their, their uh, uh, shields, wore it around kind of like, you know, as, a, as an emblem. And they went forth as a so-called Christian army. <laughs> now here's Constantine, <laughs> just one of those emperors. He doesn't, he doesn't have any knowledge at all hardly about Jesus Christ, but now he's, because he's put the sign, the, the, the Giro on his shield and his men have it, it's a Christian army. Constantine won. It was a miraculous thing, really. He won. But he won the Battle of Melbourne Bridge, and he, he took over complete control of the western part of Rome. And he proclaimed Christianity to be his faith. Now, there's no testimony like uh, uh, Trippo and him telling uh, Justin Martyr about how he got saved. You read all you can about Constantine, and you won't ever find where he came to grips with, grips with the fact that he was lost in the center, and Jesus Christ is the Savior, and he trusted Christ as his own personal Savior. There's no indication of that. He just said, I need Christianity because I want to unite this nation, and I need their power, and so he declares himself a Christian. And now he's a Christian, and he's got a Christian army because he declares he's got a Christian army. Now he's a Christian Rome. Well, you see that on the map. Constantine and Lucinus, uh, they met at the, at, in a, later in 313. Uh, and Lucinus, by the way, is the other guy on the east side who's still in, got a power in Rome, in the Roman Empire. It's sort of divided, but now Constantine has taken out Maximinus. He's the western power. He's got this eastern power to deal with. So in 313, Constantine and Lucinus met in, in, in Milan, Italy, and signed a document granting freedom of religion to all and this is called the famous Edict of Milan. Milano, and by the way, it's a beautiful part of Italy. If you ever get up there, it'd be good to just go to Milano. If you want to see some beautiful country, it is probably about as good as you'll ever see. So you see that on, on the map that's up there in front of you now. Let me talk about the marriage of this church and state, the big wedding as I call it. In 323, Constantine eventually came to that showdown with Lysenius. And Constantine won. Again, thus he became the sole ruler, Constantine did, of the Roman Empire, and he promptly made Christianity the preferred or the religion of, of the Roman Empire. In what is called Caesaropapacy, that is state rule of the church, now the church is going to be run by the state, Constantine placed himself over the church but refused to submit or to um, subject himself to the church. He said, now I've made the church this, uh, part of the state. I've given it state authority and state backing, but it's not going to be the preacher who's in charge. It's going to be the me. 
know, I'm the emperor around here. You're going to do what I tell you to do. And the church, I'm going to run the church. And I'm going to do it through the preacher, through the, who's the bishop here of this big church in Rome, the capital city. They're right there together. And he can, he can do it, as I've indicated a while ago. In the days before 323, pagan Rome persecuted all of Christianity. But I will tell you from 323 forward, which is called Christian Rome, and I use that again with quotes, Rome persecuted two Christians in the name of Christianity. So let's talk a minute about the Council of Nicaea. I've mentioned that 325 is the year. You have it on the graphic in front of you. Council of Nicaea. It, it, Constantine now invites all the preachers. Remember in 323 he's declared Christianity to be the state religion. Now he's going to get all the preachers together, the heads of the churches as he called them, these, whoever they are. Keep in mind that not every one of the preachers came. A bunch of them didn't. These, uh, these who embraced true Christianity in the New Testament type Christianity, the Christianity of the Christ and the Apostles. Uh, most of them, or at least a lot of them, uh, did not, certainly none of them embraced state religion, and most of them didn't line up to go with Constantine to the Council of Nicaea. So Constantine called this council of pastors and church leaders, and his main reason was to ad address a doctrinal schism or issue or divide within the ranks of Christianity. As a whole, the council met in Nicaea in the early part or the summer of 325 A.D. Many things were agreed, just for your, I guess, enjoyment here, if nothing more, I will tell you that this is the time they determined on when Easter would occur. The first full, first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. So that's how we end up having a rotating Easter. It's not on the same day every year, it just depends on, on the, the equinox. And so this was happened, this, this was declared at that particular time. And, and they agreed on a number of other things, including the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Even though a bunch of them had, uh, had really gone a long way in doctrine, they still could agree on the Trinity. They still could agree that Jesus Christ was really God. He was divine and not some other thing. Do not assume that the agreements made at the Council of Nicaea, which is a really big deal in the history of churches, this is a big, big biggie right here. It didn't Chalcedon, it was later. Um, this one and later councils, don't imagine that the agreements that were made at these big meetings, these synodes, was accepted by all of the Christians. It was never accepted. Most of what they believed, some of, but not all by sure, of what they declared that these councils was, was not embraced by all the Christians, particularly these first century Christians. Sometimes the state church was right. They got it right. I think they got it right on the Trinity. I think they got it right on the deity of Jesus Christ. But a lot of times they were not right. And so you have to keep what happened at these synodes, these big agreements, take it with a grain of salt and be sure you're a good Berean and look it over before you embrace. Not everybody, as I've indicated in the notes there, jumped on the bandwagon. Long before the big Roman wedding or of church and state, major tensions were growing within the ranks of Christendom at some churches, at some churches, the bigger and more prestigious ones moved away from Scripture and apostolic practice, others stayed true. But I have to tell you that the ones that stayed true became more and more the minority 
and the ones that were moving away became more and more the majority. So this is what was going on. Again, understanding orthodoxy. Let's visit that again because it's so critical to what we're doing here. Webster defines orthodoxy as, quote, keeping to the usual and fixed beliefs, customs, and so forth, especially in religion. We know orthodoxy is what the Bible says to be true. That's what we know it is. In the minds of those growing in power and clout, the beliefs and positions taken by the stronger churches became orthodoxy. It's might makes right. If we say it's true, it's true. That's orthodox. It's what we say is true is true. These people no longer did what the scriptures say constitute orthodoxy. Instead, what the church believed and taught constituted orthodoxy, which is sometimes called tradition. Orthodoxy and tradition, church tradition. That church tradition became the orthodox position, in other words. Once this concept was fully in place, the state church determined what was orthodox and what was heretical, who was a heretic and who wasn't, who should die and who should live. Tradition ruled, not the word of God. And I say with a major understatement that Pandora's box was opened right here, buddy. You talk about trouble about to start, it's happening here. This is a groundwork that's going to produce all kinds of evils for a long, long time to come. I want to give you some inescapable truths, some inescapable truths and some ramifications. If you want all this material, a whole lot of stuff out here on the table, here are some inescapable ramifications. Number one, churches that remain true to the core doctrine and practices of Jesus and the apostles have existed continuously from the church in Jerusalem unto the present. They've been along here. These indications that we're going to look even in more detail in a little while say so. So it's not like I'm up here in 2023 and I believe these things and I look at the church in Jerusalem, New Testament, and I see these same things they believed that I believed. But I'm here and they're there. There's no connection. There is a connection. These things that they believe here, they believed here and hereafter and hereafter and so we're going to look at that line as we go here. And it's against all these overwhelming odds. I mean, you would think with a persecution that none of them would survive. And you would think with all these uh, drifts, these big guys getting bigger and more powerful and putting pressure on the little guys, that it just, that the, that the church of, like Jesus built would have gone away. They'd just be eradicated. That is what the intent of their enemies was. The Romans wanted to do it and the Catholics wanted to do it. But the reality is, these churches have remained. Jesus promised the perpetuity of the institution that he personally established in Matthew 16, 18. And so you can look at it and see it's happening. It's beginning to develop. We're going to look at it more. Number two, church legitimacy is not in the name. Legitimacy is in the beliefs and practices of a church. You've got to look at beliefs and practices. Now I have, to, I have to say this. As I said to start this first session today, I looked at me and said, asked myself, who am I? I am what they were. And I am now discovering that there has been a line to hear. They went by some various names. But the practices were what really identified them. 
But their action, their main practice, identified them most of all from the start. They were baptizers. Baptists. Baptizers, that's what that means. They're baptized. They're Baptists. They baptize. Believers. You look at that. That's where they were. And so these people are doing that. They're believing it in their kids and they're for 2,000 years. And I'm down here. And there's a line that I can trace of people who were called baptizers, Anabaptists, rebaptizers, dropped the Anna, Cathari, Pierce, but the rebab, everybody knew the common thread by name, which was not a name but a practice, but the, the, the practice became the name in a way. It is a, it is a, a trail of blood. Like Jim Carroll says in his little trail of blood book, you can trace it. We've been here. I look at myself down here in 2023. This is who I am. I identify. This is my heritage. my spiritual heritage. I'm a Hudson by birth. I'm a believer. And I'm a baptizer by practice. And I'm in that group of believers. I identify as a Baptist. I am a Baptist. It's a long, good heritage. Why on God's green earth would I want to renounce my heritage? I don't want to say this is no longer Northwest Baptist Church. It's just Northwest Church. This is a church of the woodlands. This is. If you lose your name, you lose your identity. You forget your name, go into a bank and write a check and just write something down. See how much they're going to honor that check. Names are important. You sign your name on a contract that you're going to pay off a house. You sign your name on a marriage license that you're going to live with this woman and marry her and him. Your name means something. I tell you, I traveled around just like most of you, and I see Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or I see Catholic Church, or I see Lutheran Church, and then I see these uh, uh, Ramification Church or Revolution Church or whatever out here. And I have to wonder, what are they? I have no identification. I just see, okay, this is just Church of East Texas, or this is the Woodland Church. How do I know what they believe? How do I have any standard or any way to make up my mind if I have lost their heritage? I don't, I'm, I'm like Brother Jerry Locke in his book. I'm still a Baptist, and I'm not ashamed of it, and I'm not bad about it either. Amen. I'm just glad I am. I'm glad I have a name that's a good name, and I know it's been smeared. But I bet you there's not a person in this room and not a person watching this, uh, this tape who doesn't have a few bones in your closet. Yeah. And I bet you wouldn't have to go back two or three generations to find some of them. Are you going to quit being by your natural name because you've got a dad that was a whoremonger? Or a grandpa? Or because a bunch of your cousins? I'm telling you, I'm hanging on to the name Hudson. It is my heritage Yes, there are some bones in my closet. I know about them. Not all of them, I'm sure, but I know a bunch of, a bunch of them. I wouldn't dare say, I'm going to go get a name change in my natural name. I have no reason. I'm not going to throw out the baby because the bathwater's dirty. Why would I do it in a spiritual heritage? Why would I want to turn around and say, well, I know there are a lot of bad Baptists and a lot of people will come to church to hear Baptists, therefore I want to give ourselves a, a, a different name that has no bearing, that nobody knows outside just my little group. 
I just post holes. I just talked about some things we need to think about because they're real in them right in front of us today. You know that? They're all around us. We have to make some decisions who we really are. And I'm telling you, I'm in a line of people, this church is in a line of people that goes way back here to Jesus Christ. And we're going to keep following that line as we move along. That's ramifications. Only those connected to the line of churches which have embraced the teachings and practices of Jesus and his apostles are true, legitimate churches. If it is, in fact, to him be glory in the church throughout all ages, throughout all ages means they've been here through the whole trip. It's only a church today that can connect to back here that is really a legitimate true church. True church. Why do we baptize people who come here from a Methodist church? The Methodist church started in England with John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Their main argument against John Calvin over in Reformed Church was they didn't believe in eternal security. So you got a church that started. We can't accept baptism for church that, that has a John Acumley. How could we accept the baptism of a church of Christ who started with Alexander Campbell, what, in 1700s, 1900s, back there? How could we accept somebody from a Lutheran church who started up here with the Protestant Reformation? It's, it's not hard to see why we have a lineage. We have a heritage. This is who we are. This is our identification. And we identify with Christ. And if we can't identify with Christ, we ought to take our shingle down. Not even be a church. So, the ramification. Those there is no church or group of churches in any age, beginning with the church in Jerusalem to the present, that were always right on everything all the time. You got to look at it. I just want you to understand: you're not going to find a perfect church among humans, and that's all churches are among humans. God's ahead, but the rest of us are humans. Every church has some weaknesses. The church in Jerusalem, Israel, had a a quarrel right away about the Grecians and the Hebrews and some jealousy because one side was not getting enough personal uh, welfare attention. And so the church had some baggage to it. Churches, this church has some weaknesses. And so does every church you're ever going to see, the best of them. The seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, God said, I have somewhat against thee. You could say that about Northwest Baptist and all of us. It doesn't make us not be a church. You don't have to have everything right, but there's some things you do have to have right, and I've mentioned those some things you do have to have right in the start and two or three times now in these talks that I've been giving you. I'm talking about believing salvation by grace through faith. I'm talking about the local independence of each church. I'm talking about eternal security. I'm talking about those type things. And I have to tell you, I'm not even interested in concerning myself joining up with some group that started here 100 or two or three or 400 years after Christ. I want the one that I'm a part of to trace itself doctrinally and by its practice all the way back to that church in Jesus. Well, there ought to have been a few amens right there. Amen. <laughs> I'm preaching now. <laughs> I'm preaching. Well, I'm going to move on because we've got to stop. Multitudes of individuals, churches, and formerly uh, connected to a false church, have seen the error of their ways. I'm just simply saying, down through the centuries there have been people who woke up. They were in a bad situation. They were in a church that was not a legitimate situation, didn't have a proper authority, and proper baptism, proper ordination, all that stuff. They woke up, and you know what they did? They went back and got it straight. 
They went back, got properly baptized. They got into a church that was in the line. They got it straightened out. That's the right thing to do. It's impossible to be neutral on the issue of true legitimate churches. Well, um, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take another little break. We'll come back and I'm going to finish up this chapter and get into the other. Because I've having to miss, I just skipped over enough. But I've also post hope because I felt like there's a place I need to stop and make sure you get the main point, not just go through all this information. So take a, take a break for a couple of about to five, ten minutes and come back in and we're going to hit the road running pretty quick. Down through the centuries, there have been numbers of these groups. However, I want to talk about these first ones, these earliest ones, being first the Montanist, the Montanist. While all this move into heresy, move away from truth, this orthodoxy thing was going on and developing, these Montanists, they continued for the most part to be true. I'm not saying every Montanist did, but as a group, as a whole, that group stayed true. This was one of the earliest groups of churches to make a major stand, I mean a concerted stand of modernist type churches against the growing departure from first century Christianity. They saw it. They said, we're not going there. And they stood up to, re- to say something against it, to stand against it at these conferences, these meetings, they would protest. Montanus, that's the name of the man who was the sort of head of this, who started it out, was a Phrygian uh, who arose in the year 156. So that's when somebody began to say, you guys are getting way away. We're not going there. You need to turn around. You're not practicing what Christianity is really about, what's stated in these scriptures. Remember at that point, they didn't even have a canon yet. Makes it more difficult, but still they saw it. And Montanus and his followers held very firmly to the traditional rule of faith. Remember the rule of faith being scripture, from be scriptural or, or divine or inspired. It has to agree with in. It has to agree with all the other divine inspired books. It has to agree with the Old Testament as well. So these men and ladies held to the traditional rule of faith. And here are some of their beliefs just to show you they were like us. They were like the first century Christians. They believed salvation to be by personal faith in Jesus Christ. They opposed infant baptism. The universal priesthood of all believers was one of their major stands. They, that is, stood against a, a, a hierarchy with the priesthood and the, all that goes with that. They also believed in the coming millennial kingdom, that Jesus coming back is going to rule this earth. They believe the Old Testament prophecies about Israel, the nation of Israel. They were not like the Gnostics who rejected Israeli things. Also, their emphasis was on earthly, uh, on earthly material goods was minimal. They were not Stoics. They didn't believe everything is material is evil, but they just weren't for laying up treasure on earth. <laughs> they didn't think you need to be rich to be successful. They just Figured we'd be content with what we have, and we'll work hard and, and live right before God. Doesn't that sound good? Would you wish you had no more people today that uh, have feel that way about life? They're, uh, also, they, 
uh, emphasize purity of life. Not just your behavior, treating people right, honesty, downright good character, uh, your thought system, that it needs to be right. You don't need to have hatred in your heart. You don't need to be coveting your neighbor's wife. You don't need to be have ulterior motives about getting rich because you help somebody and getting something in return. No, your, your thought life needs to be straightened and, and right with God. Also, one of their uh, beliefs was that no governmental control over a church should happen and no control over one church over another. No big eyes and little U's. Churches are just churches, whether they're large and small, it doesn't matter. They're all just churches before God. He's the head, and, and no big church should say, we have bigger authority and more authority than you as a small church. Here are some of their weaknesses, and you're going to see a map here that's going to show you that uh, weaknesses in just a moment. Montanus, quote, sought a forced continuance of the miraculous gifts of the apostolic church. Forced gifts. He thought that they could still do what the apostles did. It's it's one of the weaknesses. I think they were sound people, except that they had baggage. This is is a piece of their baggage right here. Uh, This included the continuance of prophecy and uh, ecstatic auricular utterances, that is, speaking in tongues. Gosh, today you'd say, we have nothing to do with them. And I'm not saying that every Montanist believed that. But I'm just saying that was part of what they as a group uh, still tolerated. But I told you yesterday or early this morning, we have to be aware that no church, even the sound good churches, had it all together all the time. Any more than necessarily we have it all together all the time. Uh, We still have baggage. We still need to work on it. We still need to be more and more what we ought to be. But just because you have some weaknesses in one or two areas do not mean that you're not a church. Again, going back to those churches in Asia Minor, those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, God says to them, several of them, I have somewhat against thee. But he still called them his church. They're still his church. So I look at that and I wonder, where do you have to go to no longer be a church? He said, beware, I can come and remove the candlestick. He takes the candlestick away, you're not one of the churches. You may be calling yourself and carrying on operating, but it's not when the Lord recognizes His. What would make the Lord do it? Because you believe in speaking in tongues? Well, it didn't happen here. I think one thing that would do it is your failure to believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul in in that Galatian letter told those churches, if any man preach any other gospel to you than that which I preach, let him be accursed. And any time God curses a church, I think it's not his. It's a done deal. It's over. And certainly to preach a different gospel than the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and hope exclusively in him is a wrong thing. And I have to tell you, that in my own personal mind is the thing that will make me get off the bandwagon and stand up first and most of all when people get away. That's the reason we vet missionaries that come around here and people, we want to make sure that if we're going to send somebody, put our money to send somebody to a foreign country, even if he calls himself a Baptist, that he's not telling them to pray a prayer. He's not telling them to do some good work. He's going down there and telling them that you've got to be saved by trusting Christ as your Savior, and that's your only hope. Amen. I see that here in this group. Also, um, they insisted that those who had lapsed from the faith should be rebaptized because. Um, they had denied Christ and ought to 
be baptized anew. Well, uh, that seems uh, maybe a little overkill there, but the fact is that's what they did. And because of that, rebaptizing, you can see they got that name Anabaptist right off. <laughs> okay, you're rebaptizing. Anna re Baptist baptizer. Okay, Anabaptist. And so this name, I mean, this is, we're talking down here, and uh, in, in, you see on the graphic of what, there a while ago, where they started in that, where they went, the Montanists I'm talking about, they're, they're early on. They're barely out of the first century, early in the second century. And this group starts up, and here's the things that they believed. They were followed by a group called the Novations. The Novations. Let's talk about them. This happened in about 250. A schism, a schism is sort of a theological term for a war, a little fight, a disagreement, an argument going on in the church. A schism broke out in Carthage, which is in North Africa, over the election of Cyprian as the bishop, the preacher. Now it's already gotten big enough that there's bishop ideas a little different than the Bible's idea of bishop. Cyprian met opposition in this man named Novatius, Novatus, Novatus, who was a church leader, kind of a not a necessarily a good sterling character. He had some not too good a reputation about his life and spirit. In the end, in the split, Novation was excommunicated. The schism spread. Many of the Montanists, they followed Novation because uh, this, they, they felt like that, that uh, what he said was right. He was standing more on these doctrinal truths that I've been talking about and naming here along. So, so in this split uh, that many of the former Nova, uh, Montanists followed Novation and they were then called Novations, Novationists, Novations. And they were called by a variety of names, but one of the things that I like best about these is uh, they were called Cathari. These were names mostly given by bystanders, the people around. Not that they call themselves Cathari. Cathari means purists. That tells you something about what they believed and where they stood. They stood on pure, pure lifestyle, pure thoughts, as I've indicated. So though the Novation Schism was over purity and readmission to the church, many of the Novations embraced the New Testament doctrine and the practices of the, the Montanists, which I've mentioned. So you can see Montanists, just like those churches, not just exactly, but very much like those churches in, in Galatia and in Corinth and Philippi and Colossae, they're doing it. But they're the next generation. They have not followed, they've not swallowed this drift, this changing of definitions and orthodoxy is not what the Bible says, it's what the church says. They didn't buy into that. So I'm just simply saying, you say, where were we in the first and second centuries? Here's where we were. And this is us. They weren't exactly like us and everything, just like we're not exactly like we ought to be and everything. But there we were as a whole, they embraced these four core doctrines that I have uh, deliberately brought to your attention more than once in this, in this talk. There is another group that came on the scene, and they're called the, the uh, Donatists. And these are probably the better known of these three groups. But they're a little later, a little later. Uh, you can see on the graphic up in front of you where they started the year 
and they continued on past us, but you can see the Donatist up there on the graphic, as I said. <clears throat> Donatism developed toward the end of the third century, and for you who have a little trouble with that, remember the end of the third century is going to be 290s, 280s. You will say, well, the third century is 380s. No, that's already in the fourth century, You're working on it over there. So that is a little confusing to people as they look back at history. So we're looking here in the in, a, in the 200s and probably the latter part of the 200s and carrying on then over into the next century and the next century after that. <clears throat> and like Novationism, it too was rooting in controversy over church discipline and martyrdom. There was a big, big argument that we know nothing about in our society. What if when you are called into question for your faith, you recant. They're going to kill you if you don't recant. You don't say, hey, I don't really believe that. You have to say. You just look at, uh, at Sandy and, and BJ here. If they got called into question and BJ is going to be hanged or burned at the stake, if she doesn't say, hey, I renounce Christ, would she do it? Would I do it? Would you do it? What about Sandy? What about you? They were confronted with those type decisions. You either renounce this Jesus you say you believe in, or we're going to burn you to death right over here. And you've watched them burn a bunch more before, and you saw all the agony that went on. So that got into these churches, and they're going to say, well, what if somebody renounces Christ? Were they really saved in the first place, or how should we should we receive them back into the church? It's like nothing ever happened when they renounced Christ. If they, you know, live through it and come back, and want to be part of us, and follow. so it just became a big, big point. I mean, we, like I said, we haven't had to face that in, in here. Thank God, I hope we never do, but I pray we might. So anyway, they were rooted in this controversy over over what happened. What do you do to people who renounce or backslide, and those who face martyrdom? Well, Donatus was a, a very charismatic fellow, very gifted and charismatic man. And it is from him that the movement took its name, from Donatus himself, Donatists. And the Donatists rejected infant baptism. They were congregational in their form of government. In doctrine and practices, the mainline Donatists were Anabaptists. That's what they practiced, the rebaptizing of everybody who didn't have a legitimate baptism that got saved first good testimony of salvation that their baptism followed. If they encountered people like that, it was a no-brainer, just like we do right here in this church. And that's what we do. Somebody comes here, wants to join a church, hadn't trusted Christ. We say, hey, you're welcome to come. We'd love to have you, but you've got to be saved first. If they say, well, I was saved, I am saved, but I was baptized as a baby, or I was baptized in the Lutheran church or a Catholic church, well, we say, you're going to have to follow Lord's Scripture of baptism here. This is what they were doing. This is not something different. This is not like they're way out somewhere all far. No, not at all. So in doctrine and practice, the mainline Donatists were Anabaptists, and a part of that line of true churches extends back to Jesus Christ. And I have some really good stuff on the Donatists, and I, think I have a really high opinion. They were, for the most part, they were a solid group, really solid group. Well, I've talked about score, core scriptural teachings. They're repeated here. Uh, here's the list of core doctrines which have been embraced 
in a continuous line of churches bleeding, bleeding back to Christ. I've just talked about three of those groups who embraced Christ personally founding the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The church has two kinds of officers, pastors and teachers. It has a government, it's congregational. Congregational government and discipline, all churches are to be entirely separate, independent. We can't discipline somebody in another church and they can't discipline somebody over here. That's been going all the way back here. In congregational government and discipline, all churches are entirely separate and independent of the state. No state church. The church is to keep the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper to assemble on Sunday as memorial feast, not in order to save people. Uh, salvation is exclusive by grace through faith in Christ alone. Only saved people are, rec are baptized. This necessitates rebaptizing of persons who, who had a ducking or whatever it was beforehand. Every believer is of equal worth to God, and there is no ecclesiastical hierarchy. The scriptures are the only, only, and only the scriptures are inspired of God. The scriptures are the final rule of faith and practice for believers in any age. A lot of other beliefs, but these constitute the main and core ones. And I just wanted you to say this about these people so that you could see they've been here. We didn't just start with somebody that started in 500 or in 1100 or 1500. We're starting back here at the Church of Jesus and going to the kids out of that church and their church and what they believed. And two or three generations, I'm going on right here and just what I, I've shown you. So now we're going to the next lesson in your notes. We just finished the last lesson, so I'm going to really get through here as quickly as possible. I have to tell you that by the 13th century, the false church headquartered at Rome dominated the Western world and much of the East. There was no true pope, I think, until about 600, but groundwork was established, and we've already been seeing the kind of drifts by these writers, these people taking these different positions in the Bible. And you can see even though the Roman Catholic Church wasn't up and functioning per se, it was already developing. And it already had lots of itself in place before 600. But 600 is a marking spot that we'll get to in a little while. This organization, when it really got stronger, it really took over and persecuted Christians. So we're going to see that. Let's look at the strengthening of how it got so big, how this church got so strong. First of all, we're going to talk about Constantine. He saw Christianity as a valuable tool, and he thought, if I can wed the, wed the Christian religion to my, my state here, and me be the boss of it all, then I'll have the best of two worlds. So that's what he did. And he became the sole ruler in 323, and he immediately declared Christianity to be the preferred religion of the empire and declared himself to be the chief bishop. The pastor of Rome, generally called the bishop of Rome, became then a key person in Constantine's court because he became the one that Constantine thought was the head of the church under Constantine, and he could make sure when anything related to the church was told and Constantine wanted, this preacher was responsible to getting the word out and making sure it happened. Because now it's viewed as, in that side at least, that group was viewed as, as a one church, you know, one, not many, Catholic church with visible in all the places on earth that had a church with one church, not many. Also, so since Constantine takes this stand, you can see how all of a sudden the church is, is strengthened. And boy, I mean, I'm talking about the false church. It is really, they got the government behind them now and they got the chief man on, on their side. Then there were strong and charismatic pastors in, in this Rome church. Quickly, even before Constantine, pastors in Rome rose to prestige and power. 
We've already seen that. The bigger churches and the stronger voices and the smarter guys, they seem to take over. They got stronger and stronger. One of those was a guy named Antecedus. He was 157 to 168. He gained status as a monarchical bishop. That is, he became head over several churches. That's when that got going. Not just a pastor of one, but now here's a guy that's over many. Also, the big church in Rome did not view the smaller churches as separate autonomous congregations. They viewed all the smaller churches as part of the big church, just one church. Then Innocent. Boy, if I ever saw a guy that was misnamed, this one was. <laughs> He's the first bishop of Rome to make the claim that Peter had a tradition and he was in it. It's called the Peterin Tradition. That is, there's a group of popes, starting with Peter being the first pope, and I'm in the line, and therefore... I'm in the Petrian tradition, and we have the power of God to tell us what to do, and we are the head of the church, and we tell y'all what to do. I'm man of God. This is the ace evidence of the Catholics for their claim that they're the true church, and that this pope is the supreme head of all Christendom. That's, that's where they get it, right here from this guy. Uh, I want to talk about Leo the First. There were more than one of these. But Leo the First, 440 to 461, say about a 21-year rule over, this, uh, over the head, or, you know, a pope, uh, or at least the head of the church. Couldn't really call him a true pope just yet, but he was there. He cited scripture to support the claim that he was in the direct line of Simon Peter in this Peter tradition that had got handed down now to him. He used Matthew 16, 18, 19. On this rock I'll build my church against the hell shall not prevail against it. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. He said, that's me. That's the church. Whatever we say, it goes. We're the ones he's talking about here. And he used these others that are in your notes. On October the 10th in 451, the Epistola Dogmatica, uh, that's a sort of high lofty language for what he did. It was Leo's ruling on the issues of corruption and immorality. And it was read at the assembly of Chalcedon. Now remember, that's the assembly that we've talked about already. It was a well, these synodes where they all got together, the big wigs got together, they had a church conference and a fellowship, and they made plans and they sort of determined the direction it was going to go. And here's what he said that is the faith of the fathers, that it is the faith of the apostles. So we all believe, so the Orthodox believe. Anathema to him that believes otherwise, through Leo, Peter has spoken, even so did Cyril teach. This is the true faith. This is what this guy, Leo, is claiming. I'm speaking in Peter's stead, and he's the first guy. He got the keys to the kingdom, and I got them now, and know what I say is the way it is. Peter's, uh, Leo's position was clear when he spoke. Peter had spoken. The voice of the pastor of the church in Rome was now rising in primacy above all the other smaller churches and even the larger churches. It's becoming the dominant church. Gregory, Gregory, Gregory the first, 590 to 604. Gregory the first was one of several pastors of the church in Rome who made political and military alliances. Now all of a sudden, they're no longer in just religion and Christianity, so-called. Now they get into the government end of this thing. And they start making these alliances with these uh, people, these political powers. And, and Rome, he became a politician, a strong politician, and that not what one pope did, the next pope said, I assume that and I add to it. So they just kept building their strength, just adding on. Quote, 
To me, this makes him justifiably the first pope because he did that which seems to me is essential to the core of the Institute of Christian uh, of Roman Catholicity or Catholic Papacy. This is the union of church and state. Uh, this is by Dr. Carl Diemer, who was a professor of mine at Liberty University, and I really admire the guy. Uh, he is saying, and I agree with him, this is when you can say there's a true Catholic church. they got a true pope because he's not only a religious leader. Now this pope can rule kings. He can get into the political world and make alliances with, with whoever he wants to, and he can rule the roost, and he's going to get worse instead of better. Let me also talk about the geographical position. We're talking about the strengthening of the papacy, how it got to be what it is. It's just amazing it's gotten so big and strong. But the geographical position of Rome, and there's a map on your screen now, and take a good look at that map. One of the great reasons why Rome ultimately prevailed was her location. The instant Constantine became emperor, the bishop of Rome became the most important, powerful, influential bishop in the entire western state or western uh, em- uh, part of the empire. And you should look at the uh, screen up here in front of you, and we're looking here at Italy, and this is all the west over this way, over here till you get over to I- England and Scotland and Wales, North Africa along here, all the way to the eastern end of the Mediterranean, Jerusalem, church in Antioch, Tarsus where Paul was. Sort of. And so we're looking here now at these churches but notice here where Rome is. It's kind of in the middle. And so its position, kind of in the whole of the empire over here and way over to over here, uh, puts it in its desired place to be a boss, to be a, good, a strong ruler. And with Constantine in power, and the bishop of Rome being here, he can call the shots. It's easy to do, and he can strengthen his hand. And that's what nearly all of them wanted to do. Everyone wanted to strengthen their hand. Rome was supreme among the churches uh, that accepted the idea of a universal church and a state church government. So Rome was the big boy, and they, cooled, they, they made it happen. These doctrinal controversies, talk again a little about some new ones here. One's called the Arian controversy. Arius was a man. And he argued that Jesus was different and not equal with God the Father. He said that Jesus was created, he's an offspring, and he is not eternal. There again, you see Jehovah's Witness position right here is this Arianism. At the Council of Nicaea, the majority voted unanimously that Christ was the, the same substance, quote, the same essence, co-eternal with the Father, distinct from the Father, only in person, that was at 325, and you can see that ruled against Arianism. The, they were right, even though they were getting very corrupt in some ways and had become a state church. Still, the state church had it right. Jesus Christ is divine, and that's what they're arguing here. So the Bishop of Rome, which you saw in the graphic a while ago, the Bishop of Rome is on the winning side again. And it happens again and again that these big controversies He's on the winning side. He sort of states the position. Everybody bows to it. And every time that happens, he gains more clout, more influence. This Nestorian controversy was over how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. You can see the Trinity is just being bounced around a lot. Uh, it was never, uh, it was also over whether uh, or not Mary was the God bearer. Oh boy. 
the mother of God, that's the position that got taken. Mary was the mother of God. Boy, that fantasies of you know worship and female deities really grew. In 451, Leo I, who was the Bishop of Rome, stated that Christ has two natures, two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. <clears throat> this is generally called the hypostatic uh, union. And I'll say again that in this particular issue, he was right on the issue. So again, the hand of the, the Bishop of Rome, he's the Bishop of Rome now, is strengthened. There's another controversy called the Pelagian controversy. Pelagius argued that men have freedom of choice <clears throat> and that they're responsible to God and make good decisions. Pelagius ignored original sin and said sin is solely by choice, which makes it possible to live a sin-free life. Well, this is a big, big gripe, big argument here. Augustine, who was there, argued it for original sin and against man's free will. You really have two wrongs, two wrong positions at argument here. He strongly advocated the doctrines of sovereign grace, which were later enunciated by John Calvin. And people who have the idea that John Calvin is the author of Calvinism, they missed the boat here. Augustine was, and even before Augustine, the Essenes at Qumran were very Calvinistic in their positions. But nevertheless, uh, this is called the Pelagian Controversy. And Augustine also took a position that children should be baptized to wash away the tent of original sin. Baptism thus became viewed as a sacrament which was necessary to the washing away of sins. This obviously fit the developing institutional salvation theology of the state church. So even though they were wrong on it, it made them stronger. It made them put more into the power into the church. The power of life and death, the power of eternal life and eternal damnation. Then there was another one that seems rather silly to me, but nevertheless it, can, it wasn't silly to them and it's not really, I suppose. It's called the iconoclastic controversy. This is the issue uh, had to do with icons, whether an icon is an idol or not. The Western Catholics who gravitated toward Rome took the position that the full figure of an image is only an icon. These statues like of Moses that Michelangelo made. And so they say, these are not images, they're just icons. They just stand for. Well, the Eastern Catholics who are now setting, uh, have set up shop at Constantinople, which is now Istanbul over in that end of the Mediterranean, the eastern end, gosh, they, they took the position that full figurines are idols. They said, you, you Western Catholics are worshiping idols. And we all know that idol worship is wrong because God said you should make no graven image. So they said you're making graven images. What the Eastern Catholics at Constantinople said was that we have pictures and no statues. And the pictures are just icons. But you Roman Catholics have icons that are, ca are idols, statues. and they're So they had a big fight over that. Well, the controversy divided Eastern and Western churches really big time, and it was already happening. It was going that way. So let's look at the East versus West, and there's a map up here that shows you that. Um, East versus West. I need to say about that that this is basically Pope versus Patriarch. All of these at this point are still Catholics. 
but it's the Roman Eastern, the Western Catholics and the Eastern Catholics. And now there's this divide and they're squaring off. These over here got their thing. These over here got their thing. And this tension is building. The move of the capital divided the state church of the empire into two camps. The West headquartered at Rome and the East headquartered at Constantinople. Let me elaborate a little so you get this really clearly. Whenever, see this dividing line here. Here's Rome right in here. Remember when Constantine took over, he, he was centered at Rome. That was He had the bishop of Rome, the church at Rome, right there to talk to. But Constantine realized that these Germanic tribes up here are coming to get him. He was a military man well enough to get the idea that I got to get out of here. We can't, we can't stand. We are not strong enough to withstand. We got, I've got. So he left here and he moved over here. And this is not a big map, but it basically gives you an idea. He moved over here to what would considered be the eastern end of the Mediterranean into Constantinople, which is Byzantium, and he renamed it Constantinople. It's now Istanbul, Turkey. So that's, that's where he went. You can see what happened. When he left here, he's the head, he's the state. He goes over here. Now he can't tell the Bishop of Rome what to do. He's over here. He sets up a similar arrangement over here in his new location called Constantinople. And the guy that's equivalent to the Bishop of Rome is called the Patriarch. Patriarch, Eastern, Pope, Western. Now the Patriarch has the ear of Constantine and then Constantine died, but then other Roman rulers are ruling from Constantinople. And they're over here in the, west, in the east. What's left here is a vacuum. These charismatic preachers, bishops of Rome, already well-respected, big, got money, got clout. The Petrine tradition is going. They've got property, at least some small property at this point. And boy, oh boy, they are there, the ones that are left standing. These guys that are raiders, they're pretty ignorant guys for the most part, but tough, rough, you know, just beat you up type guys. They come down with their armies. They got a lot of muscle, but they don't have a lot of brain about them. So they come down here, and they're going to conquer, and they don't find an army waiting for them. They find a preacher with his arms open. Say, so come on in. We're glad to see you. What is the preacher going to get in trouble? The guy that's his boss is way over here. He can't do anything about it. He'd already run from the out of town. So what happens is these uh, these preachers start uh, calling up to these raiders, and they start making these alliances with these raiders. Okay, come on in. If you'll come in here peaceably. We'll bring our people to you, but you've got to convert to Catholicism. Already, remember that, that uh, controversy, Aryan controversy, that lost down here in, in Egypt, in this area? Okay. This Arius had gone up into this area with his followers, and they started preaching to these Germanic tribes, these Anglo-Saxons and these Lombards and these others up here. Most of them have become Christian 
in the sense they're Aryan Christians. They don't believe that Jesus is really God. So they're up here. They're already thinking they're Christian, but they come down here and uh, they meet this new preacher in this church in Rome who's telling them, uh, you've got to convert to our brand of Christianity. And that's not a real big step for most of them. Well, we're already Christians. Let's just say this. Their brand of Christianity down here says that Jesus Christ really is saved. But that's just word mostly because they're already saying you don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. You just got to be baptized. So these guys make these alliances. If you will become Christian, I will make you a king. I'll give you power. What's happened now to the church, to the, to the bishop of Rome, who's now becoming kind of like the pope, he's got the power to make a king. If he can make a king, he can take away a king. So these kings are kings, but now their real boss is the preacher in the church in Rome, the bishop of Rome. And as they get stronger, these bishops of Rome are making more kings. They're taking down some kings and they're flexing their muscle, and they're getting rich. They're building, building. In fact, one of them, uh, who in an arrangement with the preacher here says, you, you convert me, and I'll convert my army. We become a Christian nation, and we'll become a Christian people and follow you. And we'll give you this big section of land about where the pointer's pointing down here. It's called the Papal States of Italy. It's about one-fifth of Italy. And now all of a sudden, the preacher of the church, the bishop of Rome, he not only is the spiritual head of all these churches, this, one, uh, this, this big organization, the church, the Roman Western Church, but he's also able to make kings, and now he gets a big piece of land. He owns a lot of property. So he's just fattening his pockets all the time, getting stronger and stronger. And over here in the east at Constantinople, the patriarchs are rejecting all this. They are getting more and more anger. And there came a point when they decided to completely split from each other. And I need to tell you that just in your notes, and I'm because of time, just getting ahead of here and summarizing, so I won't go through all this individually. But uh, in time, the, the bishop of Rome had set up a, a way to control people more. Uh, he, he called it a, a ban. He also called it an interdict. Let me get, turn in, in the notes to the right section here and get, get to these so I can make sure you get it right. Because like I said, I'm sorry. He, uh, the excommunication, it's, uh, it's in the last uh, part of your book on this, uh, this particular session, how they were going to crush the, op crush the opposition and this was by Gregory VII. He issued this papal bull, which gave the Pope the power to excommunicate people. And to be excommunicated means that the church could take away your salvation, not just kick you out of the church. They make you go to hell. This became the power of the Pope. A second bull or rule that the Pope decided, Leo, or excuse me, Gregory decided, was an interdict. 
And as a part of it became part of Catholic law, and the interdict said he not only could send an individual to hell, he can demand, he can send a whole a whole uh, nation, a whole group of people to hell, like England. There's a showdown came later between the King of England and the Pope, because King of England didn't want the Pope to have power over England. He was still a Catholic, but he just didn't want the Pope to tell England all what to do. England's rising in its own strength and power. So he said, we're not going to obey the Pope. You know what the Pope said? I'm, I'm damning all of the people of England to hell. I'm, I'm exercising the interdict. And all these thief, these uh, uh, kings and these local feudal guys that owned big property and had the slaves, and you know what they did? They marched over to the King of England that you're going to get right with the Pope or we're going to take you out. Now the Pope can make them bow down to him and do what he says. This is what's going on. This is the strength. That this, is, this papal power is getting stronger and stronger. And he had another one called the ban and a part of Catholic law. This gave the church power to enforce by civil authorities under the power of the church. The church could do this with civil backing uh, to run an excommunicated person out of the territory, exile it, run you away. You've you got to leave the country here if we don't kill you before you get out of the country. That's about the way it really was. So I just wanted you to know that, that there's this uh, preacher over here at this uh, church in Rome who's now making all these alliances and got all this power to send people to hell, to make kings, to demote kings, and do all the things he's doing. He's got all this going on. So he's become the basic ruler. And over here, things have gotten so bad in the, in the East, in the empire, that there's really no central power over there except the patriarchs, kind of like the Pope. They're not as strong as the patriarchs. So they're doing their own thing over there. And they decided to finally just, just divorce each other. So and one day, the Pope issued a papal bull, that is a, a ruling, excommunicating, sending to hell the patriarchs. Patriarch already knew it was coming, so on the same day in Istanbul or over in Constantinople, he issued a bull sending the Pope to hell. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> but that's the way they did it. That's the way it's always going on. This is a big political. Can you imagine doing this in the name of God? That's what they were doing. But I have to tell you that while the list was going on, uh, there were our people who were staying true. I've already mentioned the Montanist and the Novation and the Donatist. They're not all of them. We're going to pick up there in, after, well, in the, morning, in the morning, and we're going to see a bunch more of them, who they were, where they were, and what countries, and what this big war machine's doing against them. I do need to tell you that you ought to look really carefully in your book at the greed and the financial exploitation of these uh, popes, how they took advantage. By the 13th century, I'd say 12th, 13th century along in there, the Roman Catholic Church owned probably 60 or so percent of all of Europe. They owned it. They were telling people what to do. They told all these local guys, these various people in these countries, this is what you pay to us, this is your tax. Let me, let me read through this. Greed and financial exploitation. 
they had what they called anates. These were enforced by the Pope, and he now had kind of an army because all these who were loyal to him had soldiers. He could get them together if he needed to. Anates were the first year's income for all bishops and abbots. In other words, if, if the Pope appointed you, and he did all the appointing, he appointed you to be the bishop over a, an area, which meant maybe several individual location churches, or they call it one, but over this what they call a, a, a parish. If he put you in, you got paid for that, but your first year's pay as the preacher or the bishop over it went straight to the Pope. Anates. Then he had also collations, that is the rotating and shifting of bishops and abbots to new bishoprics. This would give the, they'd have to, if you were moved around, you'd been here two years, you're now getting settled, but the Pope decides to move you over here. You've got to pay now your first year in this new location to, to the Pope. So the Pope's getting rich, Rome's getting rich, big time rich. By the way, if you think there are not, just take a, take a trip to Rome and look. Just walk through the Vatican. Get a tour through there. Walk through the Sistine Chapel and look up. Look at all the Persian rugs. Look at all the Michelangelo statues. They are rich. They own a bunch of property right around the medical center, right here in Houston, all over, this, all over the states. I mean, they're rich. This is how they started out. They got a bunch of money. They not only had those, but they had expectations. That is, paying the Pope money to get a job at a bishopric. If you wanted the job of another bishop... You started lobbying for it. You could pay the Pope some money, and he could help you get the job. And usually the Pope put up a job like that to the highest bidder. So whoever was willing to pay the most, put them in. There were also reservations. That is, the richest and the best of the bishoprics, the ones that produced the most income, they didn't let a bishop have it. They just got it straight to the Pope, came in. They kept hold of those. Then there's what's called just spolorum, that means just spoils. When an officer of the church dies, all that he owned went straight to the church. No inheritance of the kids. They didn't folks not have any kids. A bunch of them had some kids, illegitimate. But they did. Anyway, they went to the Pope. Also, tithing. Now, you know what tithing is. That's not what they thought. Tithing was a real estate tax on any significant land or building or property in a bishopric. Anywhere in the like in Houston. <coughs> The Pope could say, you pay tithes, you pay so much on the medical center, you pay so much on all the other places around here. <clears throat> then there were dispensations. That is, paying the Pope money to excuse someone when they broke the rules. You were a landowner, you were a pretty healthy guy in the, in the system, and you went out and killed somebody, or you cheated on your, you know, you had sexual affairs and all that stuff. You just pay the money, pay the Pope, he can, he can excuse you, take care of you. And if by chance you die and you go to purgatory, which they had to invent, it's like that tree out there, the bull, you know, you got a purgatory out here. Well, then these were these indulgences, and that is paying money to reduce your time in purgatory. And what you could do if your dad died and went to purgatory, your mother, you could buy indulgences and shorten their time from maybe 1,000 years to 500, depending on how much you paid. Sell of indulgences is the thing that broke the back of, of some of these uh, Catholic pe people like Martin Luther and caused the Protestant Reformation, of which, by the way, we were not a part of the Protestant Reformation. We're not Protestants, so I want to say that right up front. We were here before the Protestants ever got here. 
And I talked over there in the notes about a split. And this thing in Rome is going on. They're getting bigger and stronger and dominating and all that bad stuff's going on. Here's this group of monetists and novations, Donatists and some others, Cathari, Anabaptists, in different places. I'll show you where. You know what I think? They split from us. Rome split from us. We're the ones that like Jesus. The Rome's the one that left. They're the ones that split. We stayed where we were, and we have stayed. And we tried to kill us and did all that stuff, but we're still here. One of Brother Lanier's stories, I've told some of you before, it just tickles me that I think about it. He's talking about a guy driving down 45 South. He and his wife, he's driving, the wife sitting here, got a little boy about the size of little, little uh, Ricky back here. He's supposed to be seat belted in, but he's getting up, getting up like that. Standing, won't talk to mom and dad over the back of the seat. Dad kept saying, get back, you got to get in that seatbelt, boy. I mean, he kept rebuking him. Finally, Dad said, hey, enough of this. He just got him back and pushed him back and said, sit down there. The little boy started crying, sniffling, got the seatbelt. And in a minute, his dad heard him say, but I'm still standing. <laughs> we got pushed down. We got beat up. We're still standing. We're scourged and we're hated by this world and we're considered not in the mainstream of things. Hey, I don't want to be in that mainstream. I want to be in the stream of Jesus Christ. Brother Darren, would you close our time? Tell everybody what they need to know. If we need some questions, I'm willing. It's about time to stop, though.